Long before David Notak sat down with investigators from the Pacific County Sheriff's Department to explain his role in a series of mysterious disappearances, he was a run-of-the-mill family man living the epitome of a simple country life. Along with their three daughters and several boarders over the years, David Notak and his wife Shelley lived in a charming farmhouse on the outskirts of a small town called Raymond, Washington. With a population of less than 2,000, Raymond was a close-knit kind of place, where rumors flew quickly and a good reputation with the locals went a long way. Few people knew that better than Michelle Notak, David's wife. Around town, she was known for her willingness to help the less fortunate. She had a unique talent for attracting the strays of society, and as far as anybody could tell from the outside looking in, she treated those fragile souls with an acceptance that almost seemed saint-like. But for the people closest to Michelle, the ones who called her Shelley, they saw a side of her that was far more hellish than holy. The abuse that her daughters claimed to have both experienced and witnessed as children left them terrified to speak out until they were well into adulthood. Even then, it would be several more years before Shelley's true nature was finally exposed. When 26-year-old Leslie finally worked up the courage to contact the sheriff's department, the stories of physical beatings and psychological torture inflicted by her own mother were horrific enough. But then she surprised them and brought up a name that the detectives had definitely heard before, Kathy Loreno. Kathy had been living with the Notex in the early 90s before abruptly disappearing without a trace. Shelley told everyone that the woman spontaneously decided to run off to California with a mystery man she vaguely described as quote-unquote, Kathy's trucker friend. Over a decade after Kathy supposedly got swept up in her whirlwind romance, Shelley's eldest daughter was ready to tell the detectives what she knew. She couldn't be completely sure how Kathy died, she told them, but she could tell them a few things with a high degree of certainty. First off, Kathy was dead, and second, her mother was a cold-blooded killer. She couldn't offer any concrete physical proof to back up her claims, but Leslie was certain that Kathy wasn't the only life that Shelley had snuffed out. And to make matters even more twisted, she allegedly did it with the help of her loyal husband. This is Monsters. Before she became known as Shelley Notek, Shelley was a little girl named Michelle Watson. She was born on April 15, 1954, and unfortunately, her earliest years were extremely difficult. Her mother was an alcoholic who was clearly on the decline. Shelley's father eventually took the children and left, at which point her mother's condition worsened. She became involved with another alcoholic, which exacerbated her unfortunate demise. After living with the man on Skid Row for a while, he eventually murdered her in the motel room they had been sharing. Shelley was only five years old. Losing your mother at such a young age is sure to leave its share of nasty scars, so the fact that Shelley started acting out afterwards probably isn't all that shocking. What could be seen as shocking, however, was the way her behavior seemed to escalate as she got older. Manipulating other people came easy to her, and she seemed to hone her ability over time. She also developed a consistent pattern of coming up with wild stories for the express purpose of suiting her needs from one moment to the next, from falsely accusing a family member of rape to falsely accusing others of stealing her belongings. There was no shot too cheap, no story too outlandish or devastating. If she felt that a lie would suit her agenda, she told it freely and without remorse. Like most troubled children, she also struggled in school. She hated the routine and despised having an authority figure to answer to. In Shelley's mind, she was the controller, not the one to be controlled. After high school, she drifted aimlessly from job to job and relationship to relationship. 
By the age of 24, she found herself the single mother of two toddler girls. Both daughters had a different father, but there was one thing they had in common. Both men were already far removed from the picture. But after the dust from those failed relationships finally cleared, motherhood seemed to settle Shelley down, at least for a while. During this particular era, she worked hard to provide for her children and even began to consider a career in nursing. She ultimately abandoned her aspiration, but found other work in the medical field, such as working in nursing homes or providing home health assistance to the sick and elderly. It was incredibly rewarding work, especially for someone with a soft spot for helping people. The young mother's newfound sense of purpose lent some much-needed stability to her life. Before long, she would cross paths with her future husband for the first time. A veteran of the Vietnam War, 30-year-old David Notek was working as a carpenter when they first met in 1982. He was still nursing the wounds left by a failed relationship at the time, but spending time with Shelley filled the deep void of loneliness he'd felt since the breakup. He was immediately enamored by the fiery redhead, and the pair quickly became an item. Sure, Shelley could be overbearing and a tad neurotic, but David was a go-with-the-flow kind of guy and he was happy to meet her demands. For him, Shelley represented a fresh start in life, certainly a more fulfilling one. After all, she had managed to pull him out of the grayscale world he had been shuffling around in and into her world instead. But as colorful and loving as that world could be, it also had its share of darkness and despair. David just hadn't seen it yet. The couple married in 1989 and moved to David's hometown of Raymond, Washington. He worked construction while Shelley stayed home to raise the girls. Shortly after settling down as an official bona fide family, the Notex welcomed Shelley's first stray, her 12-year-old nephew Shane Watson. Much like herself, Shelley's little brother was traumatized after her mother's murder. Although he was Shane's father, he was typically either in prison or in a motorcycle gang. In other words, he was in no position to raise a child. As a result, Shane spent his formative years being shuffled around from family member to family member. Most recently, he was being raised by his grandparents, but he had become too unruly for them to handle. In desperation, they reached out to see if anyone else could take him in. In the eyes of the family, and the town as a whole, Shelley swooped in to save the boy. David was equally on board with the sudden arrival of their bonus child. Shane was the son that David never got to have and he welcomed him with open arms. He started teaching the boy how to surf and the pair bonded quickly. Years later, while speaking with investigators, he spoke fondly of Shane and of his role in the family. But back in 1989, that moment in the interrogation room was too far into the future for the Notex to foresee. Their family had other, happier things to think about at the moment. Shelley gave birth to her third daughter that year, David's first and only child. Soon after they brought the baby home, they also brought in their first tenant, 36-year-old Kathy Loreno. Kathy started out as Shelley's hairdresser, and they had been friends for quite some time. Thanks to Shelley's charm and outwardly caring nature, Kathy felt comfortable enough to vent about her relationship woes. She was dealing with a messy breakup and desperately needed someone to confide in. She was at an emotional low point and Shelley could sense it. So when Kathy told her that she was being evicted from her apartment, Shelley was more than ready to swoop in and save the day. Besides, she thought she could use a little help with the kids now that the baby was here, so she suggested that Kathy join the no-tech household as a live-in nanny in exchange for free room and board, along with some extra cash to cover her miscellaneous expenses. Given her recent stream of bad luck, Kathy must have seen the offer as a much-needed lifeline. She was happy to accept it. By the next year, the drastically extended family was finding their rental home to be a bit cramped. Luckily, it didn't take long to find the perfect place. A quaint farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere, situated on a five-acre plot of land. It was surrounded by trees and wide open space, plenty of room for them to stretch out. But it wouldn't take long for that little farmhouse to become Shelley's personal funhouse. A place where mind games weren't just a favored pastime, they were a way of life. 
and even if you somehow managed to escape it, the memory of that place would never leave you, no matter how far you ran. Two years after settling into their cozy new home, Kathy suddenly left. The Notex informed their children that she had fallen in love with her trucker friend and had made the spontaneous decision to run away to California with him. Apparently, she was so dazzled by this mystery man that she didn't even bother to say goodbye to her family before she left. She simply told Shelly that she was leaving, hopped up into the truck, and that was that. It took a year or two for the Loreno family to realize just how long it had been since anyone had last heard from Kathy, but it wasn't like her to simply cut ties and leave without telling anyone where she was going. Would she really travel halfway across the country without bothering to give her loved ones so much as a phone call, or even a single postcard for that matter? In 1994, Kathy's mother filed a missing persons report, but unfortunately there wasn't much evidence to point the police in any particular direction. Aside from a set of financial records showing that all of her banking activity had ceased sometime in 89 or 90, they couldn't find any valuable clues to add to Kathy's case file. The trail went cold before they could even get a decent start, but the sheriff's department wasn't quite ready to call it quits. In the interest of doing their due diligence, a couple of deputies decided to swing by the Notech residence, which happened to be Kathy's last known address. Shelley was cooperative with them, but seemed unconcerned about her longtime friend's well-being. She explained that she knew that Kathy was living it up on the road because she had a stack of mail that her friend had sent over the course of her travels, and she had the letters and postcards to prove it all mailed from various locations across the U.S. With no real reason to doubt her story, especially after seeing Kathy's correspondence to Shelley with their own eyes, it all seemed to line up, so the sheriff's department considered the matter to be pretty much settled. Even though Shelley's trucker friend narrative was enough to satisfy the investigators, it didn't sit well with Kathy's family. They couldn't understand how she could send all of these messages to Shelley, yet never sent anything to the family that was so desperately searching for a sign of life. What the Loreno family didn't know, but probably suspected, was that Kathy was already dead, and had been that way for quite a while. Shane Watson was the next to disappear. In February of 1993, Shelley called the police to report that her teenage nephew had run away. Oddly enough, though, she called back a few days later to let them know that she'd gotten in touch with Shane. According to her, he told her that he left for Alaska to work on a fishing boat. For a kid his age, the fishing gig was an attractive way to spend the summer months. It was good money, too. Lots of local boys ended up going to Alaska, so the story didn't seem all that crazy to an overworked investigator with a heavy caseload. But as the years progressed, nobody would hear from Kathy Loreno or Shane Watson again. Nobody except for Shelley Notek, apparently. In the summer of 2001, Shelley's eldest daughter Leslie was now a grown woman herself. She ran away from home at the age of 21 and went into hiding, then tried to lay low for the next five years, praying that her mother hadn't gotten angry enough to come looking for her. Even at 26 years old, she was terrified of Shelley. It was a fear so paralyzing that it would take half a decade of freedom before Leslie could gather the nerve to come forward and tell Pacific County authorities what she knew. If Shelley had been angry when Leslie left, she would be positively seething if she found out what her own daughter was about to do, and all of the no-tech daughters knew that was the worst mood to catch her in. Although she had a desperate need to tell her story, she wouldn't allow the authorities to record the conversation. If there was physical proof of what she had told them about her mother, there was a chance, no matter how small, that Shelley might somehow find out about it. Leslie was already anxious as it was, and she was understandably reluctant to have that particular anxiety heaped on top of everything else. But once the detectives assured her that they could still talk Sam's recording, she finally started to relax a little. Given the horrors that she began to unpack for them, it appeared as though she had some pretty valid reasons to fear her mother so deeply, assuming that her story was true, of course. 
The people of Raymond tended to think of Shelley Notek as the town's good Samaritan, a woman with a genuine desire to help the most vulnerable members of her community, and she had an apparent knack for it as well. One of the Notek daughters had a childhood friend that stayed over often. The friend reported nothing out of the ordinary during her visits, which included a month-long extended stay with the family. She certainly hadn't seen anything that should have made her feel uneasy. Shelley was the perfect host in her presence, but every time she was getting ready to return to her own house, she was filled with an inexplicable sense of dread, as if the girls would be in mortal danger once their secluded farmhouse disappeared into the distance. But others had a slightly different view of Michelle Notek. In certain social circles, she was known as Crazy Shelley. Some people described her as high-strung, but generally nice enough to be around. She never really kicked her childhood habit of lying, according to a few others. Even her own stepmother recounted a time when Shelley told everyone that she was dying of cancer, and even went so far as to shave off her own eyebrows to try to sell her story. And if David had as much trouble buying it as her stepmother did, he never made it known. Considering the manipulative schemer his wife could sometimes be, his acceptance of her actions could have stemmed from any number of factors. On one hand, he might have simply been too run down and steamrolled by his domineering wife to call her out on her bullshit. Or maybe his love truly was blind. Although it could also be argued that the blindness was willful in David's case. If you ask the investigators their opinion after he gave his two-part confession, they'd probably tell you that Shelley had conditioned him to a state of almost pathological agreeableness, until the idea of saying no to her felt like it wasn't an option. But the more he spoke to detectives, the more it seemed like the thought never even crossed his mind. Leslie's story supported that theory. She painted the uncomfortably vivid picture of a mother whose kindness was conditional, and always came with a catch. Shelley was a giver who wanted everything you had in return, up to and including your life. After all, she had saved you when you needed saving the most. She made it clear that you owed her, while simultaneously forcing you to become totally dependent on her. She was drawn to vulnerable people, and she took her time to gain their trust. She took a sadistic joy in propping them up, only to drop them on their heads without warning, sometimes literally. She knew exactly how to control someone, how to dismantle their mental defenses brick by brick, how to keep an entire household under her thumb. There were brutal beatings and fits of rage that would overtake her out of nowhere. She controlled the people under her roof with an iron fist. She told the kids what foods they were allowed to eat and when they were allowed to eat them. They couldn't use the bathroom without her permission. If they broke any of her arbitrary rules, she had a never-ending list of punishments designed to humiliate just as much as they hurt. Sometimes she let them off easy and simply locked them away in a closet with a bucket to serve as a makeshift bathroom, or made them sleep outside. Other times, she took an electrical cord, her weapon of choice, and whipped them so hard they'd have bruises across their legs when she was done. If she was feeling especially annoyed, she sometimes forced them to strip to their underwear before hosing them down with cold water or demanding that they roll in the mud. Such horrific abuse was a common occurrence for Leslie and her sisters, but nobody was safe from Shelley's sadistic side, including Kathy Loreno. In fact, Kathy seemed to get the worst treatment out of everyone, according to Shelley's daughter. She went on to describe a particularly harrowing incident when her mother ordered each kid to stab Kathy with a pair of scissors. As young children trained to obey her commands without question, they had no choice but to comply. If they refused, they could easily be the next one to suffer the business end of those scissors. As a result of the physical torture she endured, it didn't take long for the once healthy Kathy to become a hollowed-out husk of her former self. And if you believed Leslie's allegations, it wouldn't be hard to imagine how such a drastic decline could occur so quickly. And even with all that information, Shelley's daughter had merely begun to scratch the surface. For the first couple weeks or so after Kathy moved in, everything was going great. At some point, though, something changed. 
Rather than continue to treat her as part of the family, Shelley and David decided to imprison her and subsequently downgraded her status in the house from honorary member of the Notech clan to personal slave. That was when Kathy's slow, agonizing demise officially began. When they needed a little entertainment, they stripped her completely naked and made her crawl across the floor. Whenever the urge arose, which was quite often, Shelley subjected her close friend turned captive to various methods of physical and psychological torment. She took a sick pleasure in restricting Kathy's food intake and outright starved her for extended periods of time. Then when she finally was permitted to eat, Shelley made it as horrific an experience as she possibly could. Specifically, she liked to give the poor woman something rotten or infested with insects, taking great care to conceal the nasty surprise covering it with something else. At first glance, Kathy would see something appetizing in front of her. By the second bite, she would notice Shelley's additions to the dish. Usually, she would be commanded to eat the food anyway, but the revolting reality was that she was so hungry she often ate it whether she'd been told to or not. Right before Leslie's eyes, Kathy was becoming someone else. The prolonged abuse took a heavy toll on her. She lost weight rapidly. Her body became frail and only grew weaker by the day. Shelley's ability to scramble brains had broken something vital inside the good-natured people-pleaser. Even if Kathy somehow found the energy reserves to try to get away, it wouldn't have mattered. Shelley had already convinced her that there was no point in running. Besides, it wasn't like she had anywhere to go, even if she could find a way to drag herself down the street. Kathy did try to make a break for it early on in her time as a prisoner, but in a cruel twist of fate, she only got about a quarter of a mile from the house before Shelley caught up and brought her back. It was a turn of events that only seemed to reinforce the fears her tormentor had planted in her head. If she couldn't manage to escape while she was still in reasonably good health, what hope could Kathy possibly hang on to now that her strength had waned so dramatically? She could sense death's icy breath on her skin, and she had no interest in getting caught trying to leave and making things worse while she waited for it to finally call her number. Leslie couldn't say how Kathy died for certain. She wasn't around when it happened. However, she definitely recalled the day she suddenly went missing in 1991. Shelley ended up taking the kids out of town that night, after she put all of them to bed in the hotel room, she slipped away, presumably to meet David and figure out how to cover up what had happened to Kathy. When Leslie and her sisters got home, they noticed a big fire blazing in the backyard. Their mother gave them the song and dance about how Kathy fell in love with a trucker, despite the fact that she had been confined to the same room for months. And those postcards Shelley showed to the deputies in 1994? Leslie told the police that she saw her mother creating those on her own, and would send one out anytime the family was traveling so it looked like Kathy was sending them while she was on the road. To keep the kids quiet about anything they had witnessed or been made to do, Leslie claimed that her parents threatened to kill them all and commit suicide afterwards if any of them mentioned Kathy to anyone or dared to question their mother's story. And now that she finally felt strong enough to talk about it, Leslie went on to tell the authorities that she had her suspicions regarding her cousin Shane's sudden decision to relocate to Alaska and become a fisherman, but she wasn't completely sure what actually became of him. Knowing her mother, though, she had the feeling Alaska was just a convenient way to cover up something morbid and terrifying. But if one good thing had come from those two separate yet similar disappearances... It was the fact that they were the main thing that motivated Leslie to escape her mother's clutches, even if it meant running away from home. Hell, at least she still had the ability to run. She was 21 years old when she finally freed herself from her mother's domineering presence, although it wouldn't be surprising if that imposing sense of dread still appeared as a fixture of her nightmares. After meeting with Leslie, the Sheriff's Department did a little digging. Their records indicated no reports or allegations of abuse had ever been made against David or Michelle Notek. Next, they checked the local school's records on all four kids, but those were just as useless. Nothing in their files indicated abuse of any kind. They were all good students, well-behaved and involved in extracurricular activities like basketball. They seemed to have healthy social lives. 
all things you'd expect to see from healthy, normal, well-adjusted children. Given the distinct lack of evidence or suspicious activity from the parents, it was hard for the authorities to imagine them as the demented monsters Leslie described. Her story was almost beyond comprehension, let alone belief. But was it true? Unfortunately, there just wasn't enough evidence to take her statement at face value. But when they attempted to reach out for a follow-up interview, the detectives had found out that Leslie had already skipped town and went back into hiding. Apparently, she had gotten paranoid that Shelley would find out what she had already disclosed to the authorities. Without Leslie's help, there wasn't much of a case. For all they knew, her statement was just something she made up to punish her mother over some kind of disagreement. Without a follow-up interview to dig deeper into the things she claimed to have witnessed, there wasn't much that could be done, whether they believed her horror story or not. Another year passed, with Kathy Loreno's disappearance still unsolved and Shane Watson still unable to be located either. During that time, Shelley's name would come up in the sheriff's department yet again. In February of 2002, 81-year-old James McClintock, a man who hired Shelley to take care of him, died on her watch after sustaining significant blunt force trauma. She claimed that the elderly man had fallen from his wheelchair, which he was known to do now and then. This time, he must have hit something on the way down, because the place looked like a crime scene when she found him. There was blood everywhere. Sadly, it's impossible to prove if James really did fall or if his home truly is a crime scene. His cause of death was listed as undetermined and Shelley walked away from the incident without any charges. In August of 2003, however, she would come to find that her luck with avoiding any scrutiny from the authorities was about to run out. But before that would happen, the Notex had opened their home to a brand new boarder, 57-year-old Ronald Woodworth. To Shelley, Ron's origin story was a familiar one. A recent breakup brought him from San Diego to Raymond. He was lonely, depressed, and in desperate need of some friendly support, and with good reason, too. After losing the love of his life, his job, and even losing his house to foreclosure, he found himself drifting into Washington to be closer to his ailing mother, a woman Shelley happened to care for as a home health provider. It didn't take long for her to sniff out his pain and start offering a sympathetic ear. They struck up a friendship, and from that moment forward, Ronald Woodworth was doomed. He moved into the house in October of 2001, only a few months after Shelley's eldest daughter outright accused her of murdering the previous boarder in a secret conversation with investigators. And to their credit, once they realized that Ron had moved in, the sheriff's deputies made an effort to check in on him. But as soon as Ron saw law enforcement approach, he would run away and hide. It was odd behavior, sure, but was it enough to declare that Shelley Notek was the personification of evil? So far, the sheriff's department remained unconvinced. Maybe the guy just didn't like cops. He certainly wouldn't be the first person to make himself scarce any time he saw a police cruiser pull into the driveway, after all. He might not even be the first person that ran from the same officer that day. If Leslie's story was true, however, Ron's reluctance to speak to the authorities would have been an indication of just how much control Shelley had over him already. When Shelley's eldest daughter finally re-emerged in August of 2003 and contacted the sheriff's department for a second time, she had someone with her who was willing to vouch for her claim. Samantha, Shelley Notek's middle daughter. Like Leslie, Samantha ultimately found the courage to leave the house. Now that she had become a grown woman in her own right, the sisters were reunited and shared a common mission. To get 14-year-old Tori the hell out of there. Tori was the last of Shelley's daughters and the only one still living at home. If she wasn't taken from that house, and soon, they feared that she would be the next person to die in it. On top of that, Ron Woodworth had apparently gone missing. Surprise, surprise. Shelley had an excuse locked and loaded, but it was almost a carbon copy of her storyline for Kathy. Ron had simply disappeared into the night, and as far as she was aware, he was planning to start a new life in California, with a vaguely described love interest at his side, of course. With two of the three sisters now giving the same story, the authorities finally had enough information to act. 
They descended on the Notech residence on August 7th and whisked Tori into protective custody. Her mother vehemently denied any allegations of abuse, but as the survivor of horrific beatings and repeated psychological assaults, Tori's relief after being removed from the house was palpable. No amount of crying, arguing, or causing a scene was going to get the deputies to bend to Shelley's will. The very next day, Shelley tried a different tactic. She asked David to go down to the Pacific County Sheriff's Department and try to smooth things over. Maybe if he asked nicely and Pinky promised to be a good parent, they would simply hand Tori over and let her come back. It wasn't the brightest idea, especially for a couple that had committed the level of heinous atrocities they had been accused of. Nonetheless, David strolled in on August 8th and politely asked what it would take for them to get their daughter back in time for dinner. Obviously, he was gravely mistaken when it came to the way these things worked, but the detectives didn't mind letting him find out the hard way. Shelley had sent the police the key to her own downfall on a silver platter, and she didn't even know it yet. Right then, the detectives had one of their prime potential subjects sitting in front of them, ready to talk. And to make the moment even sweeter, they knew they had something, or more specifically, someone that they could use as leverage for information. Sure, David, we'll help you get your kid back, but would you mind sitting down to answer a couple of questions first? Apparently, David didn't mind in the least. To the surprise of the investigators, he was passive and cooperative the whole time. They were the traits of his personality that Shelley probably valued the most, because they directly fed into her need to maintain complete control over the people around her. And now, David was sitting in a little interrogation room, having been stripped of his agency and critical thinking skills long before he had gotten there, assuming he ever really had any to begin with. In other words, he was definitely one of the softer nuts to crack. When it came to Shelley, he had been conditioned to take the path of least resistance and buckle under the slightest amount of psychological pressure. Oh sure, he did his best to take the heat off of his wife, especially at first. And once again, my wife, I mean, I love her dearly, and she, there's no way that she caused any abuse on Ron or Kathy or anything, and, and if she didn't call, you know, when Ron passed on, it was just out of fear and fear what happened in the past. And like I say, my wife, she she worries about everything and she was just looking after her, her family again, Tori, me. You know, she's just being the protector that she always is. But after a little coaxing, his story would take on several variations before he settled on the final version that came out in his taped two-part confession. In his final statement, he told the detective that Kathy's death was purely accidental, although he admitted that there were definite signs that suggested she was suffering from some kind of medical crisis. But even though he knew something bad was happening, he never called for an ambulance. I asked her what was going on. I mean, I just wanted to know because I had noticed a couple days prior that Kathy's vision was a little not right. And I asked if she'd, you know, fallen or, or, or did she got into something and taken something or because I did a little finger test on her. She wasn't, you know, staying with my finger there a few days ago. And she says, no, not that I was aware of. This is so in her eyes, you're saying? Yes. Like, doing this, see if she follows. Yes. Yeah. So she wasn't coherent. I mean, she's coherent, but her balance was off. She, okay. She'd walk at her. Not she's too stable. Yeah, she'd stumble a little bit. So that day, I guess she'll, you know, said she, you know, she wasn't feeling so good. So she was lying down most of the day. Well, how many times, Leo, when you talk about you went in there and you checked on her periodically? Yeah. From the time you go in there and you find her not breathing, from the time before that, how, how much time do you figure oh, when she was okay? Probably checking her like, I don't know, every half hour. Okay, so we're saying that half hour here, half hour there, everything's yeah. fine, whatever. And then the last time you looked, she's fine. Was she, what was she doing the last time you saw her? Was she just... She's laying on her back and she's breathing. Then, 
just normal, everything. Normal, but a little labor breathing, like I stated earlier today, too. Right. Just breathing a little hard. Okay. And, uh, okay, so now we're, this, this is what's going to happen. Then what took place after that? Well, Michelle got home. We didn't want the kids to find out anything. Mm -hmm. So later that night, I, I did it in, in haste. I didn't know what to do. I mean, we thought something was wrong with Kathy. I mean, I don't know what was wrong with her, why. And we were too, this had never happened before, and we were terrified. Just a few days later, he found Kathy unconscious, unresponsive, and covered in her own vomit. He went on to describe his fruitless attempts to resuscitate her and the moment that he realized she had died. Can you, can you explain how you came across Kathy and about the time frame? This was in 19 what? I think it was 1990. In 1990? Or 91. Okay. Somewhere in there. And can you kind of go over some of the details of what, what transpired there for me? So they're in your words. Okay, it was an evening. I just came home from work, working on the road for set vlogging. And uh, I came home, and Shell, she had to go get Leslie down at Grayland. She worked at the Sea Star. I says, okay. So she said, and she says, Kathy's not feeling so good today. She's in there lying down. The bedroom by the laundry room. I says, okay, I'll keep an eye on her. And so I did, and Shell took off with uh, Sammy and Tori to Grayland. And Shane stayed back with me. Shane was in the kitchen doing the dishes. And I periodically was checking on Kathy, and she was laboring and breathing a little bit. First few times I checked on her, and just, she was. That was, seemed to be in the same condition she was when I came home. And uh, so I went in there another time, the third or fourth time, to check on her, and I noticed that she had stopped breathing. And I approached Kathy, and I, I went up and I shook her, and I, I, I asked her name and if she was all right, but I didn't. She gave me no response. And I. side and I, and I kneel down and put my head there to see if she's breathing or if her chest was rising or not but neither was happening and then I checked her pulse she didn't have a pulse and I looked at her passageway you know in her mouth was full of looked like vomit had been there a little while and her nostrils were full of it and she's lying flat on her back, and I believe she had thrown up, and it got lodged in there, and she stopped breathing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, like I said, I had her on her side, and I tried to clean out her air passage, but I wasn't having a lot of luck. It was completely full. And so I tried doing CPR, but no, no air, or artificial breathing, whichever one, mm -hmm. but no air was getting to her lungs. You know, I tried this several times with my chest compressions, but nothing was happening. All I could do was chest compressions. I even tried putting her arm, I picked her up and in her sitting position because Kathy was heavy and I couldn't get her on her feet. And I, wanted, and I tried to do the hind me, mm -hmm. you know, to make her, to force some stuff out so I could get air to her, but it didn't work. So I, I did all this for five or ten minutes, and I realized she was gone. Afterward, he laid out the process of burning Kathy's body until she had been reduced to little more than buckets of ash and slivers of bone fragments. 
he disposed of what was left a few bucketfuls at a time, split up between his favorite surfing spots, Washaway Beach and Long Beach. Often, he completed his grisly chore after spending the day catching waves. He also told them that Ronald Woodworth had indeed died under the Notech roof. Then um, with Ron, with Ron here just recently, the information was that uh, he also was deceased and that you disposed of his body. And that was not burned? No, sir. And um, your understanding of how he died is how? Well, I say suicidal. He attempted his own life. And I believe he completed his wishes upon, after a few days of his death, I mean, I discovered the two medication bottles that Shell had discovered missing in her bathroom, which Ron had been in because we were, she was trying to fix his feet and patch up the other dings he had on him due to when he jumped out of the tree to try and take his own life, which he iterated back to her. In his taped confession, David appeared to either resent or outright dislike Ron, but insisted that their final exchange had been the one and only time he'd been mad enough to actually get physical with him. He described their most recent border as arrogant and stubborn, yet plagued by extremely suicidal tendencies. Shelley was always greeting him after work with a story of Ron's antics, and because David's job took him away from home for up to a week at a time, she could tell him that Ron had done any number of things. That didn't necessarily mean that they happened, or that they happened in the way that she claimed they did, but she had so much power and free reign over the household that it didn't matter. In Shelley Notek's domain, reality was whatever the hell she said it was. So when she told David that Ronald had taken his own life, he didn't ask many questions. She said two bottles of medication had gone missing from her bathroom and she found his body on the back porch after an intentional overdose. David didn't dwell on how Ron died or stopped to wonder if his wife was telling the truth. He had to focus all of his energy on the dirty work that came with disposing of a corpse. Except this time he wouldn't be able to burn the remains. It was the middle of summer, after all, and the town had imposed a ban on bonfires. He couldn't afford to build a fire big enough to engulf a body. It would have attracted too much attention. He opted to bury Ron in a four-foot grave in the backyard and then conceal the area with a pile of brush. By this point, it was clear that the Notex weren't going to get their daughter back, and after openly admitting to improperly disposing of two dead bodies, the only thing David would be getting was arrested. But even while in custody, he continued to assist the investigators. Thanks to David's assistance on a walkthrough of the property, Ron Woodworth's body had been recovered, and they also knew where to find the burn pit he'd used to cremate Kathy Loreno. As David walked across the yard with a detective at his side, he suddenly paused. Gesturing over to a nearby shed, he caught the detective off guard with a stunning bombshell. He casually said, quote, And that's where I killed Shane. David was quickly escorted back to the station to give the second half of his confession on camera. This time, David's demeanor was remarkably different from the first interview. For the full 45-minute conversation, he almost seemed to cower in his seat. Every answer seemed to come out with a sob, and he subconsciously tried to hide his face with his hand the whole time. He came off as a broken shell of a man, anguished by the weight of what he had done to the boy he felt such a genuine fatherly affection for. You and Shane got in an argument, correct? Yes. Can you describe the argument or this tussle that you had with Shane? over the gun. He had the gun. He wouldn't give me the gun. And the gun was a what? It was a 22. A rifle carving, a short carving. Okay. And where did this struggle occur? In the pole building. And what was the struggle about? Just that he had the gun? Just that he had the gun. He wasn't supposed to have the gun. He had the gun. So he tried to, you know, just ask him if he'd give me the gun. He didn't, so I, I just grabbed the gun and tried to wrestle it away from him. And he was pulling the gun back a little bit. I said, Shane, just give me the gun. 
and wasn't. So as we were struggling, the gun went off, hit Shane in the throat, and Shane went down. It's like I described, there was blood everywhere. I didn't know what to do. I went in and told Joe. But it happened. I told him to stay in the house. Take care of Shane. So I went back out. Little Bow Billy. Grab Shane up. This time is you didn't have as many materials. No, I didn't have it, but and you didn't use any other accelerants or anything else. You just burned. No, I didn't have wood. I had wood. And you burned the, the sleeping bag with Shane in it. Yes. Sir. And you burned it. You said like six or seven hours. Yeah, more than that. Said more time with Shane. Interestingly, the court records suggest a different theory for what happened to Shane Watson on that February night in 1993. In their scenario, Shane had been threatening to tell someone about Shelley's reign of terror, and might have even gone so far as to document Kathy's abuse with pictures. Naturally, his aunt couldn't have the truth get out, so she told David that Shane had to die for the sake of the rest of the family. Eventually, he agreed to do it. While Shane had his back turned, David crept up behind him with a 22 caliber rifle and shot him in the back of the head. Regardless of whether or not the teenager's death truly was an accident or intentional, David's description of hiding and eventually cremating the body stayed pretty much the same. He was done exactly the same way he'd made Kathy disappear. Spurred on by all this newfound information, the sheriff's deputies dug up the majority of the Notech family's five-acre plot in hopes of finding more human remains. Aside from a small, quarter-sized chunk of human bone with clear evidence of being burned, they mostly came up empty-handed. Then they directed their search inside the house. Among the family's possessions, they found a treasure trove of evidence to support the case that Crazy Shelley was a narcissistic psychopath with a never-ending capacity for cruelty. The most noteworthy item found was an undeveloped roll of film that included a single shot of Kathy Loreno as she crawled along the floor fully nude. There was enough evidence to arrest the Notex, and Shelley was apprehended on the same day that David showed up at the station and tried to talk his way into getting his only biological daughter returned to his custody. But even though the county prosecutor believed they'd found sufficient evidence to have them both charged with second-degree murder and put away for a while, it just wouldn't be enough to make a first-degree murder charge stick. It was sometimes possible to secure a first-degree conviction without a body or a verifiable cause of death, but it was extremely difficult to pull off. Since Kathy and Shane were cremated and dumped into the ocean, there was no way to know how they actually died. There was no body to examine for clues, and the tiny fragment of bone that was recovered couldn't offer many answers. Although they did find Ron Woodworth's corpse, and the state of it certainly told them a lot about the various injuries he suffered while he was still alive, it was clear that he had to have been in constant agony. Even so, his exact cause of death couldn't be determined. The examination suggested that hypothermia may have played a part, but he also had been kept in a freezer for a while after he had died, so that wasn't especially helpful either. 
So the Notex moved into the preliminary phases of their trials with second-degree murder charges. Even if the maximum sentence of 22 years in prison felt woefully inadequate to some people. Shelley had been given an additional manslaughter charge while David received a few counts of unlawful disposal of human remains and rendering criminal assistance. Thanks to marital privilege laws, David and Shelley didn't have to worry about their spouse testifying against them. Even if they wanted to turn on each other in court, all the defendant had to do was claim their right to marital privilege, and they would be legally barred from taking the stand. It was a pretty sweet deal for a couple that had done some pretty unspeakable things, both for and with one another. After speaking with the prosecutors, Shelley entered an Alford plea, which meant that she was maintaining her innocence, but it was also acknowledgement that the evidence against her was overwhelming and would likely lead to a conviction if the case was brought before a jury. Thanks to this plea, she would manage to avoid a trial while also shaving her prison sentence down to 17 years. Now, with the terms of that deal still fresh in your mind, close your eyes and imagine what the look on Shelley's face must have been when sentencing time came around and the judge still handed her the maximum term. Plea deal be damned. Not long afterward, David also accepted a plea deal in exchange for a lesser sentence and was sentenced to 15 years in prison on August 26, 2004. In a maddening turn of events, Neither Notech would end up serving their full sentence, and in fact, both of them are currently out of prison right at this very moment. Shelley served just 18 years before her early release on November 8, 2022. Meanwhile, David did 13 years behind bars before being granted parole back in 2016. Shelley's daughters were understandably disturbed to learn that their mother had been allowed to walk free. When all three of your children see your release from prison as their worst nightmare come true and suddenly start looking over their shoulders all over again, one thing should become abundantly clear. No matter how you present yourself to the outside world or how deftly you can lie, the people you fight to keep so unbearably close will always see you for what you truly are. Leslie, Samantha, and Tori have never forgotten what Michelle Notek truly was or what she had turned her husband into. As far as the sisters were concerned, they were both monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.